Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. The question of how the past is remembered will always be unavoidable. But in recent years, it has loomed particularly large and proved particularly contested. Chauvinist politicians like Donald Trump, Narendra Modi and Vladimir Putin promote bellicose myths of past glory, which they claim are under attack by enemies of the nation. Simultaneously, the Black Lives Matter movement has forced a reckoning with the enduring effects of racial slavery in America, inspiring similar calls to atone for past crimes in countries across the world. These memory wars are fought so hard and argued so passionately because ultimately they're battles for control of the narrative. How we remember the past determines who we believe ourselves to be. But the most contested of these disputes are not over what we choose to remember, but what we choose to forget. If history is the story we tell about ourselves, the story we don't tell is as important to the society we shape. I'm joined today by Priyamvada Gopal, author of, most recently, the book Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. Priya is Professor of Post-Colonial Studies at the University of Cambridge and a prominent public intellectual who's been at the forefront of many of these fights. She was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect Magazine last year. Priya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lydia. Happy to be here. Now, it's a question that gets asked time and time again. Why is it important to talk about history? Well, I think we see, as you just said in your introduction, uh, that there are constant battles over how we remember history, whether we remember history. And that obviously, uh, given that it's been taken up by politicians uh, in particular, um, has a bearing on our everyday life, on on how we relate to each other, how we relate to uh, society and how we relate uh, to other cultures and other countries. Uh, The area that I worked on most recently, which is the British Empire, is something that has a bearing on most of the world's present. It's shaped by the British Empire um, and certainly by different European empires. And there is actually no way to understand who we are and how we think about each other and how we think about our relationship to the world without thinking about history. And I think one of the things that is very, very important is to uh, keep throwing light on how the past shapes the present. Um, And in fact, I, I tend to use the word afterlife Um, rather than the past, because I think that things that have happened in history have a life in the present. Um, And that's something that I think we need to be um, very attentive to. Afterlife is wonderful because it covers so much like the echoes of Mm -hmm. words, rhetoric, actions. Yes, it does cover a lot. And it reminds us that, you know, unlike the word the past, um, it's not finite, it's ongoing. And I think that Mm. that that link is really important. Well, that's kind of fascinating um, because, I mean, so I have a history PhD, but I've moved away from it a little bit. But obviously, one of the worst things that you can really accuse a historian of is teleology. And that Mm -hmm. is seeing the past purely in terms of where it landed us today, that all you're looking for is the path that gets us to where we land today. And yet when 
you're having these big public fights about the past. The present is unavoidable, isn't it? How do you how do you address that 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 tension between trying to do history on its own terms? Obviously, the past wasn't shaped by the present, but keep the present present, keep the present important. You know, I think that sometimes that distinction is overstated. I mean, very recently we've had a controversy around the, I think it's the president of the American Historical Association um, criticizing what he calls presentism um, in in the writing of history. And by that, he, he was in that particular article referring to uh, concerns about race or gender or uh, sexuality being uh, brought up in relation to the past. And I think that actually we need to slightly probe this charge of presentism and this charge of teleology, because I don't think that thinking about the ramifications of the past is in and of itself teleological. I mean, a teleology is something which lays out a distinct narrative that you will get from point A to point B, and then point B will get you to point C. Um, Looking at the past in terms of its relationship to the present, first of all, is not only uh, reasonable and necessary, but actually there is no way not to do it. uh, As historians, uh, and I'm not a trained historian in the first instance, but I work uh, a lot with history, Uh, but also as a literary critic, I understand that there is no way to remove yourself or your particular location from the texts that you read. So I think that in a way I would say the the other fantasy is the problem that somehow you can approach history and, and completely excise yourself and your location and your present from the process. I think it makes much more sense to be upfront about it. And I don't think that it is necessary uh, to say that if you think about the past from the present, you've somehow dishonored the past. I mean, that strikes me as a false binary. Your only other option is to pretend that you don't exist and that you don't exist as a historian or as a critic in the present and that somehow you are accessing the past in an unmediated fashion. And that seems to me to be uh, something of a fantasy. But the other charge, I think, of, you know, of presentism and teleology is that we dishonor the past by pretending that somehow, um, let us say, race or culture or uh, you know, gender relations is somehow unique to the present. Um, one of the things that I ended up working on um, in Insurgent Empire was this notion that um, criticizing racism or criticizing uh, imperial exploitation is somehow unique to the present. And one of the things I hope I showed is that that's just not the case, that there were people uh, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, who had, as we do, who had very critical perspectives on their present. And they spoke in terms that are not foreign to us. So I think it's really possible um, and, and curious to overstate the distinction between the past and the present and treat them as hermetically sealed entities. And I think that that's something we need to be uh you know, at least as cautious about. And also you're, you're you're making a real case that it's not even desirable to separate ourselves um, f- and, and our present circumstance, that 
there's almost something dishonest about removing that context from the conversation. And actually, I wonder if that's why so many um, academics are quite pleased to write popular history sometimes or, or popular popular um, articles in general, uh, because it gives them that freedom to include the first person context. And perhaps in a way that's actually more honest, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I'm 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 slightly cautious about the confessional uh, genre where the I sometimes takes over. But I think on the whole, it makes much more sense to be upfront about your present, to be upfront about uh, your location and the terms that you're using. What makes me slightly nervous, I think, when it comes to the use of the I. Uh, and I think, again, I speak, uh, you know, with one foot in literary criticism is the danger of relativism uh, that, you know, I can have a perspective on the past and you can have a perspective on the past. And it's all valid because we relate to it simply as individuals. And I think um, while noting the importance of location, while noting the importance of, of locating yourself, um, I think we do have to fight perhaps in a slightly old-fashioned way, for something like the truth of what happened. Um, and that actually the perspective of the enslaved and the perspective of, the, uh, of those who owned the enslaved uh, are not equally valid. That actually there, is, um, there are truths uh, that certain locations shine light upon. Um, and there are ways of distorting history and what happened that other locations have a stake in in perpetuating. So do you ever feel frustrated that more of your colleagues aren't willing to engage in these kinds of public debates over historic narratives where there is so much at stake? Um, look, I understand why people slightly hesitate because uh, it's made very difficult and it's made very costly. And I think that uh, we shouldn't underestimate how, um, I suppose, exhausting on the one hand and also punishing um, it is to engage in, uh, in public conversations. But I think one of the problems that we wrestle with in the present is that I think academia does not work with a sense of urgency and with a sense of its own uh, relevance. Um, and I think that perhaps there is a tendency in academia to continue to seclude itself from the debates of the present, from the concerns of the present. Uh, as I said, I, I understand uh, that impulse. Um, but I, I do think that if the humanities and the arts and the social sciences in particular um, are to make themselves relevant, uh, there has to be a way to engage with the present, but at the same time, without being overwhelmed by the political imperatives of the present, by being overwhelmed by you know what what the media uh, is focusing on, because I do think that that scholarship uh, has its own values and scholarship has its own um, methods and traditions that that need to be defended and, and not necessarily led by the media. But I think on the whole, yes. Um, I think the more that academics see themselves as intellectuals and see themselves as defending um, ideas and arguments that have a wider relevance, the better it is. 
Well, yeah, and that media onslaught can actually be against the discipline itself, can't it? I mean, we hear a lot about revisionism like it's a bad thing, as if there's something inherently tawdry about reassessing what we think we already know. But that's actually the historian's job, isn't absolutely. it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I find it quite interesting that the phrase that is, uh, or, the, or the verb that is often used to refer to revisionism is rewriting. Mm. And it's often made, um, it, it, it often implies that you're, when you're rewriting, you're making up a falsehood, um, that there was a truth and then people come along and they rewrite it. But actually rewriting is precisely, as you just said, uh, a way of coming to better knowledge, of, a way of improving uh, on, on what we knew. Um, and I think that we have been possibly as a profession, um, as, a, as, as academia insufficiently vocal about making clear that that is the job of the intellectual to to do better to find out more to replace old notions by by better knowledge yes absolutely i mean i wish as a as a discipline my ex discipline probably you could call it i i wish we could push back a little bit against that that the yeah. removal of statues or 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 reassessing the role of slavery in our in our institutions you know any of these things that we've seen recently over this last few weeks that that's that that's the knee jerk reaction in the culture war is to say oh you're rewriting history um and there isn't an understanding um or, uh, i don't i don't think we found a way to defend what that really is yeah um but there's something that you talk a lot about that I wanted to ask you about and that's the phrase historical amnesia it's Mm -hmm. a term that comes up in both your academic work and your public writing so could you just explain a little bit about what you mean by it um, so the, the context in which I have referred to it the most is perhaps uh, Britain's relationship to its empire which is a very curious relationship so on the one hand we are invited to uh, praise it, to um, acknowledge or uh, agree that it shaped the world for the better. Uh, and on the other hand, when the less pretty sides uh, of empire's story emerge, um, that is the point at which uh, people in Britain and uh, you know, more generally, we are encouraged to say, well, what's done is done, never mind about that. So when it comes to the British Empire, there is a curious double imperative on the one hand to kind of agree and participate and keep alive the mythology of its benevolence as well as its um, uh, contributions. And on the other hand, we are enjoined, I mean, we are literally enjoined not to revisit things that have already happened and can't be undone. So, you know, the late Queen, for instance, um, did acknowledge at some point, I think this was during a visit to India, that there were difficult episodes in Britain's past. But she immediately followed that up by saying there's no point uh, in rewriting it. Uh, by which I think she meant there's no point in going back and, and thinking about, uh, you know, the terrible things that happened. So I think that there is um, there is mythology on the one hand, which is to say mythology is a way you select certain uh, things and, and weave a story out of them and leave other things out. 
And the leaving out of other things is where we are enjoined to forget. So there is a double imperative, you know, participate in the narrative and forget certain other things. And I think that's very clear in Britain that we are uh, not allowed um, and not encouraged to think about empire in its entirety. But of course, Britain is not alone in this. Um, you know, quite recently, I was asked about, um, uh, you know, it, in, an, in the Indian press, I was asked about uh, the monarchy and the empire and why Britain doesn't want to remember its empire and so on. And, and there I pointed out that Britain isn't unique. Um, you know, India doesn't particularly want to remember its own history. And we are in, in a, at a point in history where you can see, um, you know, Hindu chauvinist mythologies being presented and perpetuated as history. And we are invited to forget the history of, for instance, of caste oppression. So I think this is a double imperative and, and it, it's, it, it it's extends beyond Britain. You've set up a lot of topics there that I want to I want to pursue the Queen and India, in fact. But yeah. but first, I just want to ask, why do you think there's such a powerful urge to forget? Because it, that's what it feels like. It is an urge. It's not just that politicians are trying to encourage people to cling to that traditional narrative, although, of course, they do. Yeah. It's that. A lot of people seem to be looking for a license to do that anyway. The fact that certain politicians give them permission is a key part of the appeal in the first place. So what do you think that urge is all about? Well, I mean, you know, any of us, okay, in our own lives, uh, it is much easier to tend the mind to pleasure and to nice things than to take stock of the things that, we would, you know, not be happy in remembering. So at a basic level, I suppose there is the human tendency to chase the positive, to chase uh, the optimistic and not reckon with what is unpleasant. So in that sense, I think it is important to acknowledge that, you know, as human beings, we, we do share that tendency. But I think mm. there is something else, which is, I think, reckoning with the past and the very grave wrongdoings of the past, I think people do tend to say, well, I wasn't there, so how is this about me? Mm. And we return to the question of the afterlife because I do think that we are very powerfully enjoined to think about the past as finished. And we don't want to think about the past as persisting in us Let's leave the bad stuff behind. Let's focus on the positive. That's a, that's a narrative. That's a teleology we are routinely invited to embrace. Mm -hmm. So it takes will. It takes an act of will to say, okay, hang on. I'm going to do a reckoning of, you know, the terrible things that happened in the past and the ways in which I am, you know, I might be a beneficiary of those terrible things and ways in which I, uh, those continue in my yes. And I think that that is hard. And, and, and I suppose when, when politicians give you permission to not do hard things, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, people welcome that. Yeah. And I mean, the death of Queen Elizabeth II has been a very powerful case study, I would say, mm. for how these big public arguments about the past, and we could, and I did use the term culture wars, how they play out. Now, she died at 96, as we have heard so many times. She was the second longest reigning monarch ever after Louis Fourteenth, which meant that she was an important player in a really wide sweep of history. The amount of heads of state she met 
over her seven decades of rule. It's just unsurpassed by anybody. Right. And of course, as a long-lived individual, as well as the representative of the monarchy, she occupied a prominent position in, in the British sense of national self. So mm -hmm. it was kind of inevitable that people would want to talk about that history in the wake of her death, wasn't it? Yeah, look, she was a ringside player, uh, you know, in the 20th century, in the 20th century as we know it. I mean, here is somebody who, uh, you know, witnessed at close hand major, major historical events that, you know, everybody knows about. And so in that sense, she is or was a living uh, embodiment of the 20th century well into the 21st century. And in that sense, clearly, um, a kind of a fascinating and and an intriguing life. I think the the trouble is that that reality then got mixed up with all kinds of other uh, stories and other mythifications and other um, interests. And the larger commemoration so far, and of course it's early days. Um, hasn't made that distinction between uh, the fact of a long life with a ringside seat at major events um, and all the other things that we are being encouraged to invest her with. Mm -hmm. And that search for that meaning actually has shown, I mean, on the surface of it, there's been a great consensus on, on this, you know, every, everywhere shut down. Um, you, uh, all the emails started flocking in about, about tri with tributes to the queen and so on. But actually when you look into what people were saying, it really has shown how little consensus there has been on the meaning, on the historic meaning. There are those who see it as a moment for national pride, who want to enjoy all the pomp, the circumstance, and they want to avoid the difficult questions, or actually yeah. they believe there aren't any difficult questions. And then there are others who, who might be willing to have some kind of conversation about the legacy of the British Empire, but they saw the Queen as a panacea to imperial shame rather than its avatar. As one writer that you've quoted put it, a Britishness to be proud of. Mm -hmm. And and finally, there are the people who see this as an opportunity to really interrogate that history while it's particularly prominent in the public consciousness. And many, I think, have seen her death as a chance to break with the past and press ahead with forging a new story about the British yeah. nation. Would you agree with that kind of that 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 way of categorizing? I, I think that's right. But I think again, it's an instance of um an open invitation. To mythologizing, right? So you cannot move on without some sort of reckoning with the past. And that has actually been a flashpoint in the last couple of weeks uh, with people saying, you know, you might see her as an embodiment of good Britishness, but for us, she represents the opposite. And, and you know, there are, I, I would say there are kind of more or less simplistic narratives emerging from more than one side. But I think what is clear um, is that this is a point at which we can either participate in the mythification, and it's ongoing and, and really quite blatant, or we can say, I think it's time to step back. She is now past. Here we have the monarchy. Here we have the empire. Now we can make a reckoning with it in a way that is honest rather than mythifying. But I'm afraid that what from what I see around me, um, it's just become an opportunity for 
uh, mythification, again, on more than one side. Um, and I think that it would be a shame if in the coming months uh, we didn't take the opportunity in Britain and beyond uh, to actually say, well, what does the passing of the 20th century in Queen Elizabeth mean? Uh, and, how, and how should we think about that moment? I mean, let me dig down into that a bit. You you wrote an article for Al Jazeera um, entitled Queen Elizabeth is not innocent of the crown's crimes. And you point out that Elizabeth inherited the throne in 1952 while she was in Kenya, which mm. was at the time a British colony. And that same year, Britain began its brutal counterinsurgency in Kenya to crush an anti-colonial rebellion. So what do you think an honest reckoning would actually look like? I think an honest reckoning would look like, um, you know, most of of Britain doesn't know about the counterinsurgency. At best, they have a vague sense of some terrible people called the Mau Mau, uh, you know, who had to be contained. And then Queen Elizabeth presided over a beautiful decolonization <clears throat> across Africa. Mm -hmm. You know, we we are being told, and I think it's really striking you know, when when you when you talk about, uh, you know, when you mention that phrase, the what was it, the the good side of Britishness or the, or the mm, Britishness to be proud of. Britishness <laughs> to be proud of. I mean, that's uh, it, it is extraordinary because mm. you know you look at 1952, um, and if you are a colonial uh, scholar of any sort, any sort of scholar of empire, it's a red letter year. You know, it is an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily ugly and shameful episode in British history. And the courts have acknowledged that by, you know, uh, ordering compensation to some of the victims of torture during that counterinsurgency. Mm -hmm. um, but if we look at 1952 as the beginning of the new Elizabethan era and the era of a pleasant and planned and gradual decolonization, that is a story that completely writes out entire chunks of how decolonization actually happened. And it was not pretty. It was not presided over uh, by a person. You know, we've heard in recent days that she was an anti-colonialist. Mm -hmm. And that, that, I think, is the kind of madness of mm -hmm. mythification that is really present. Because uh, we will, of course, never know, uh, you know, her personal thoughts on things. But her personal thoughts are, are not relevant, in a sense. The fact mm -hmm. is that she was the crown at a time when Britain proceeded uh, to a very bitterly fought end of empire. Um, mm -hmm. And there is no reason to believe that her wish was to end empire in a pleasant way. I think I think we do know, and I said that in the article, that she came to accept the winds of change um, and to accept that the empire was over. But I think that's a very different story from saying that she brought about the end of empire because that's what she wanted to do. And I absolutely agree that that is totally not dealt with in the country. I mean, as an example, I've had all my education in Britain and I haven't had one single lesson on the empire mm. at school five to 18 nothing at all yes. on empire yep. 
But that isn't the case elsewhere in the Commonwealth, is it? I mean, even before her death, there was a growing reassessment of the present relationship with the British crown in many former colonies in Africa, the Caribbean, elsewhere. Just last year, Barbados formally voted to become a republic and remove the queen as head of state. And others are likely to follow. I think we'll come to look back at this as a watershed moment in that reassessment in the relationship between Britain and the rest of the Commonwealth. Well, I think I think as you said, this was begun before she passed, um, and I think that actually the Caribbean nations are, in some ways, an interesting and separate case from the rest of the empire. And I think they're separate in one sense because precisely of enslavement and the fact that enslavement in the Caribbean is absolutely not something that can be treated as having just happened in the past and then we move on, I think, because the painful and damaging legacies of enslavement are very alive in the Caribbean. That particular uh, handy separation of past and present has not been possible. I think that we will look upon this moment certainly as one where a reckoning with the legacies of enslavement has been possible, um, or at least it's in the public domain. And with uh, Queen Elizabeth's passing, it may gather momentum. I would be wary of saying that that is happening more widely um, in the rest of the so-called Commonwealth or, or you know, former colonies. Um, my own... Uh, greatest area of familiarity is with the Indian subcontinent. And I think what we're seeing there uh, is a, a kind of additional mythification. So yes, we're invited to look upon um, empire as a, as, a, as a bad thing o- over which the Indians or the Pakistanis or the Bangladeshis finally prevailed. Um, but I don't think that that is adding up to what I would call um, an honest reckoning with history. I think one set of mythologies is in danger of being replaced with another set of mythologies. And the empire is simply a marker um, of, I suppose, anti-colonial pride as opposed to imperial pride. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's an honest reckoning. Well, and also, I, I do think the reaction um, to the to Queen Elizabeth's death in India has been fascinating. I wonder if I could ask you about that, at least as it's been presented. You know, I'm I'm no expert, um, but it seems to be that it's been not so much celebration or conde- or condemnation, but actually indifference. And as India celebrates, you know, the seventy the seventy fifth anniversary of its independence and replaces the UK as the fifth largest economy in the world, it seems as though Britain just isn't that relevant anymore. It's notable, for example, that Narendra Modi didn't attend the Queen's funeral. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, it's a bit complicated in the sense that, look, the vast majority of the denizens of the so-called Commonwealth are not well off, um, are still, in a sense, reeling with uh, the fact that independence did not bring them an improvement in life conditions. So in a sense, neither empire nor independence uh, have had great meaning for them in terms of improvement, in terms of self-determination, in terms of emancipation. So the vast majority are in fact indifferent. I don't think this is news that would have registered on most people's consciousness. I think what is interesting is the elite response because I think the elite response has been split. So in India, on the one hand, there are people 
who have been, um, if not exactly mournful, have uh, condoled uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth, who, who have seen it as a um, as a as a moment, uh, uh, you know, that has gone by. And this reminds us, it, or certainly it reminds me, uh, that the elite nationalists were not always at loggerheads with empire, that actually uh, the transfer of power in India, as it is called, was in many ways a simple handing over of the reins of state from one set of elites to another set of elites. And, and in that sense, there is a degree of, of um, you know, at least official sadness and regret at the passing of Elizabeth. The other side is as I said, the mythification of Indian independence and demands for the Kohinoor to be returned, for instance, now that you know Elizabeth has passed. Um, and again, that falls into a, a different set of, um, of mythologies whereby uh, India is now a proud independent nation. It's, um, it's in a position now to overtake Britain. Uh, this, is, you know, this is a historical reckoning that is finally happening and so on and so forth. Um, and there again, there is a different set of elite interests. I mean, it is interesting that the Kohinoor, the, you know, the diamond on the Queen's crown uh, has been the center of discussion in, in India, uh, because actually the, the Kohinoor is not of great relevance to most Indians. Um, mm -hmm. The return of the Kohinoor would not improve the lives of ordinary Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis. Mm -hmm. And there is the more difficult question of what happened before empire. You know, whose diamond is this? Uh, and, and who has a uh, claim to it? And those are uncomfortable questions that I think, um, you know, Indian elites are not necessarily willing to engage with. Well, yes. I mean, I've heard that there's a spot in Lahore where you can have a tour to the spot where the Kohinoor is supposed to be. <laughs> and that would be the last owner, right? So that, you know, that yeah. would be Dilip Singh's family. Uh, but we know that that's not where the Kohinoor began, uh, that there's a series of other interlinked histories uh, before the colonial uh, that would also have to be reckoned with. And I don't think that it, I don't think that in the case of the subcontinent, you can say, well, we will engage with um imperial history, but we won't ask any questions about what happened prior to then. Well, yeah, it's as you just mentioned, it's replacing one type of historical amnesia with another. Mm. And exactly as you say, the BJP, the ruling party, has its own projects of historical narrativizing, And Modi has promoted a much more belligerent and exclusionary vision of the Indian nature than his predecessors have, hasn't he? Yes, I mean, I think that actually in some ways, Hindu chauvinist or Hindutva mythologizing uh, has put imperial mythologies in the shade. Uh, the level of rewriting of history, the level of aggressive uh, mythification of, uh, you know, Hindus' claims to India over everybody else's, um, I, I think we're seeing something that is... Uh, at once extremely, extremely powerful and extremely dangerous and consequential because actually now lives are being lost and, and livelihoods are being damaged in the interests of this aggressive rewriting of history. And, uh, you know, it, it reminds us that myths are not innocent and they can be very consequential. Imperial mythologies 
were and remain consequential, but there are now other mythologies entering the frame that are uh, in the present even more consequential and damaging. Can you give any examples of any of these myths, I suppose, or narratives that have actually motivated real world violence? I mean, in a very simple and perhaps obvious sense, the idea that Hindus are the inheritors of India and that they are the true uh, inhabitants, those who are truly entitled to reside in India. Now, that actually leaves out the Adivasis or indigenous with a capital I uh, uh, inhabitants of India who are actually the closest to be able to claim uh, indigenous indigeneity uh, in uh, in India. Um, And the idea that Hindus, who are a relatively late uh, arrival, are the true inheritors of the nation and that others, particularly Muslims, are invaders are uh, not really entitled to reside there except by benevolent permission of the Hindus, Um, we can see that this mythology actually uh, is in operation when we have um, uh, what are, you know, I think somewhat euphemistically referred to as riots, but actually are closer to pogroms, where there is uh, where Hindu mobs or mobs uh, uh, affiliated to the ruling uh, dispensation um, have actually killed, have actually razed houses, have actually lynched uh, people uh, for eating beef uh, or on suspicion of carrying beef. Uh, and that's that's a very, I think, basic and, and uh, relevant example of how the idea of certain people being more entitled to live in India than others um, actually has, has gone. You know, we, we are in a situation where Muslims are a deeply endangered community uh, in India, and it is consequent upon this mythology. So how, I mean, do you think the BJP's project differs from the British one? And what I'm getting at here, how do these battles over the historic narrative play out in a self-proclaimed rising superpower in comparison to a falling empire? It plays out, I'm uh, you know, sorry to say, uh, in terms of new imperial mythologies. One, I think one thing we have to be attentive to is even as we acknowledge how powerful and consequential uh, European imperial afterlives are. We're all still in the grip of the 1492 project in some ways. Other empires are emerging, other empires who have learned from the playbook of European empires and are willing to put what they have learned into practice. And when we talk about the rising superpowers, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, I think is a slight exception. But the first four in that, uh, in that quintet uh, are not just rising superpowers, but are places where there are powerful authoritarian imperialist ideologies on the rise. And even as we look at the detritus of the European imperial project and its ongoing um, cruelties, 
we have to pay attention to the rise of new empires. And, and that is, I, I'm afraid, I guess, you know, if perhaps um, a simple uh, and crude answer, uh, but I think that is where we have to be paying attention to uh, the, the combination of uh, what was learned from the European Imperial Project and its collusion with older repressive and authoritarian and hierarchical ideologies. I mean, you paint quite a dark picture of India's future. Do you have any hope? I think my hope is vested with the fact that even as I say that these are all rising empires with their own authoritarian uh, leanings, that these are also places where there have historically over millennia been resistance movements. In the Indian context, that resistance has come, at least in recent years, from anti-caste movements. Um, I've been working recently on uh, Dr. Ambedkar's critique of Indian nationalism and the ways in which, uh, at the very moment that uh, Indian nationalists and anti-colonialists were holding empire to account, he was holding Indian elites and Indian caste oppressors to account. So I think that you know every for every story of authoritarian rule there are stories of anti-tyrannical, anti-hierarchy, anti-oppression movements. If I have hope uh, it is vested with the fact that those have also existed historically that the story of colonialism is the story of anti-colonialism and that in a sense we have no choice uh, but to vest our hopes and our energies in those resistance movements. Now, as we've talked about, we're going through a period of reassessment at the moment where traditional understanding of history is being questioned and revised in the popular consciousness. And I think it's safe to say that the next generation has a very different view of the past than their parents. Mm -hmm. But history is a process and that process is never finished. It's, it's not as if this is a one and done thing yeah. where at some point we'll finally be able to sit down and say okay now we understand the past and we can all move on there will always be new discoveries and new ways to interpret historic material yeah so before we finish up I wanted to ask you what else do you think or suspect we might be leaving out what issues are we leaving for the next generation of revisionists to reinterpret I think we are I mean there are many things but I think one of the things that leaps out at me in terms of thinking about the present generation, young people today, is that they are inheriting an earth which has been substantially decimated mm -hmm. uh, in the last several hundred years, but particularly in the last century or so. Um, and this is something that I think certainly my generation of scholars was not thinking about, you know, until recently. And I think that this generation of young people have raised quite profound questions about our colonial relationship in the era of capitalism to nature, to the earth. And that actually history might well be at an end, not in the ways in which you know, Francis Fukuyama predicted, but in very dire um, very annihilating ways. And I think that the invitation to think about our relationship in the post-1492 world to 
nature, to the environment, to climate. I think that that is something, uh, you know, is already being made visible and audible by a younger generation who very rightly uh, fear that there might not be much history left to actually engage with. Priyamvada Gopal, thank you very, very much. Thank you. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can find Priya on Twitter at Priyamvada Gopal and find her book, Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent in All Good Bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you.